This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about buprenorphine versus methadone in pregnancy. John, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself, Sonia? Doing very well. So, John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? You know, so I actually saw an interesting article, and this is actually from the lay press, and it was based upon an article in CNBC from the National Center for Health Statistics. And they talked about the fact that over the past 20 years, there's been basically a tripling in terms of our overdose death rates in patients over 65. So kind of our typical geriatric patients, which is a group that I think many of us probably don't kind of associate as often with overdose. And just to give you an idea, in 2000, the overdose rate in that population was 2.4 per 100,000, and now it's up to 8.8. And not only that, there's also a rise in alcohol consumption with an increase of 18% just in the past year in terms of people that have kind of heavy alcohol use in that population. So really interesting. I guess this is kind of our our baby boomers that are growing up, but certainly I could see as we kind of continue to practice kind of our our geriatric population or what we classically call our geriatric population, this could be an issue that we're experiencing more often in the office with them as well. Do you see a lot of patients in that demographic, Sonia? Not a lot. Most of my patients are kind of in their 30s and 40s at my buprenorphine clinic, but I do have some older patients. The oldest person I've ever treated with buprenorphine who had a opiate use disorder was 79. And I've had quite a few patients, especially since I've been in practice now doing buprenorphine greater than 10 years, I've had some patients who've aged with me. So now they're in their 50s where they were in their 40s before. And they plan to stay on buprenorphine for life. So they'll get older just as I get older. So yeah, I have seen some older adults who've needed buprenorphine. How about you? Do you see a lot of older people? I wouldn't say a lot, but I, I have a handful of people now that are in this geriatric range, actually probably more than a handful, but not the majority of my population. And you're right. Interestingly, I think most of that group, they have a very little desire to taper off. I think they just kind of want to live life the way they're living it and be supported as best they can. Yeah. My patients who've been on the older side, a lot of them were actually using opioids relatively comfortably. They had planned to discontinue to use at a maintenance level, but the changes in our drug supply made it so that that wasn't possible. They either overdosed or lost access to what had been a consistent heroin supply and it got replaced by fentanyl. And so they were kind of forced to switch over to buprenorphine, even though they didn't necessarily want to. And yeah, they just plan to stay on it for the duration because it keeps them stable and keeps them comfortable. So what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? Well, I've been working to get a new mini clinic open to treat opiate use disorder in one of our more rural counties, and that is just super exciting. So by the time this episode airs, I will have been going for at least a week or two, and I'm just really happy about it. I think it's going to be a fun clinic, and it's run out of one of our primary care offices, which is my favorite place to work. And I think it will really fill a gap in services at St. Max's. This is an area where we don't have a lot of other buprenorphine prescribers, and there's a lot of patients who need care. I'm also excited because I'm going to figure out how to store and prescribe injectable depot buprenorphine, and I'm just thrilled to add that to my list of tools. I've got my locked fridge on order. And I went and shadowed another provider who showed me how to do the injections. And I've already got patients who are lined up and ready when we are ready to start. So I just love treating addiction and I've been really happy to be able to do more of it. 
And I'll just put out there for any of our listeners, if anybody else is a primary care doctor and you're thinking of starting a buprenorphine clinic within your practice, we have a ton of materials that we've produced and I'm happy to share them with anybody. We have kind of a clinic in a box package that we use at St. Max's and I'd be happy to share it with anybody in any other setting. So John, you ready to talk about this article? Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about the article of this uh, episode because it's about buprenorphine versus methadone in pregnancy, and I think this is actually kind of one of my favorite areas to practice addiction medicine as our pregnant or mother to be patients. So the article is called "Buprenorphine versus Methadone for Opioid Use Disorder in Pregnancy," and it's brand new from the New England Journal of Medicine from December of 2022. Yay for addiction medicine in the New England Journal of Medicine. They do not publish a lot of addiction medicine articles. So thanks, guys, for putting it out there. You know, I, th- I think I've seen more in the past year, though, Sonia. I, 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 it's not uncommon for some of our articles to be coming from there now. I, or you disagree? Well, I always scan the journals looking for articles to present. And the New England Journal publishes a lot of editorials, opinion pieces, practice guideline kinds of pieces on opiate use disorder, but there's actually been a real dearth of actual research on opiate use disorder that they've published. Okay, fair enough. So a little bit of background here. Opioid use disorder among pregnant persons has increased steadily in the United States since 2000. Currently, 8.2 out of 1,000 deliveries are affected with opioid use disorder, and that number has been pretty steady since 2017. Opioid use disorder in pregnancy disproportionately affects patients insured with Medicaid with 14.6 per thousand deliveries currently affected, so roughly double. The standard of care for opioid use disorder in pregnancy is treatment with opioid agonist therapy with either buprenorphine or methadone. Treatment with agonist therapy is associated with improved adherence to prenatal care, lower incidence of preterm birth, reduced return to opioid use, fewer episodes of opioid overdose, and fewer deaths from opioid overdose. Previously, the Maternal Opioid Treatment Human Experimental Research Trial, also called the MOTHER trial, showed that infants exposed to buprenorphine in utero received less opioids to treat neonatal abstinence syndrome, had shorter neonatal abstinence syndrome hospitalizations, and had fewer signs of neonatal abstinence syndrome compared to those exposed to methadone in utero. Commonly cited limitations to the mother trial include a higher loss of follow-up in the buprenorphine group, where almost a third were lost to follow-up, compared to the methadone group, where only 18% were lost to follow-up. Observational studies have shown that compared to methadone, pregnancies exposed to buprenorphine have a lower prevalence of preterm birth, greater birth weights, and lower rates of cesarean section. So what's your experience, Sonia, treating patients with opioid use disorder in pregnancy? Love it. So fun. I actually have two patients right now in my clinic who are pregnant and quite a few babies who've been born over the years. It's just a wonderful time to get people into treatment. They're super motivated. They're willing to do stuff for their baby that they weren't necessarily willing or able to do for themselves. And we just try to give them a ton of positive feedback and praise and support as they go through the process. And I've had just great luck working with pregnant women. I don't think I've ever worked with a pregnant woman who didn't stick with the program, at least for the duration of the pregnancy. How about you? 
Yeah, I remember when I first did kind of my opioid uh, training, when I first came to St. Max's, one of our MFM doctors said that this is really the best time to to intervene because people are very motivated and they'll do things for their baby that they wouldn't do for themselves, like you said. So it ends up being really great. And I know you're an internist, but I'm a family physician. And I, I love the fact that not only do I get the mother, but I can also get the baby as a patient. So I love having uh, the babies come to see me too. So it's uh, super fun and, and definitely one of the areas in my life where I feel like I do the most good. I did want to just put out there for our listeners another reason why this study is so important. And, you know, there was a new study in JAMA that came out about maternal mortality. And I'll put a link in the show notes to this study. But basically, over the past three years, between 2017 and 2020, 7,642 people died while pregnant in the U.S. And of those, so 7,600 more or less people died while pregnant, 1,250 of them died of drug overdose. That's 16%. And so that is just a huge number of deaths, preventable deaths of pregnant people. And it's just sad. Pregnancy does seem to be an independent risk factor for overdose as well. So overdose rates rose among women of childbearing age and women around the time of pregnancy. So I just saw that statistic and it made me even more committed to working with and treating pregnant women. So what's the clinical question in this study? It really had two primary clinical questions and then kind of indirectly tried to at least touch a little bit on a third question. So the first question is, what is the risk of adverse neonatal outcomes associated with the use of buprenorphine compared to methadone in pregnancy? And this was assessed looking at neonatal abstinence syndrome, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and low birth weight. The second primary question was, what is the risk of adverse maternal outcomes associated with the use of buprenorphine as compared to methadone in pregnancy? And this was assessed through two main metrics, delivery by cesarean section, and then what they quote, severe maternal complications was the other uh, area they looked at. I think that indirectly, they tried to at least shed a little bit light on, I'm sure many of us have a lot of stigma about kind of use of buprenorphine compared to methadone being associated as like a surrogate marker. So people that use buprenorphine might have more comprehensive care. They might reflect a lower severity of disease. They might have more comprehensive care of their other medical issues or prenatal care. So I think they tried to look at, are these two groups actually different? And is it really like a selection to treatment bias or is it really just that one treatment's superior or associated with better outcomes than the other? What do you think of the question, Sonia, particularly the last one? I think it's good. Tell me again, you might have said, but what year was this data collected? I haven't said that yet, but I will say it. It's from 2000 to 2018. Right. I guess that is one thing that jumped to mind. Not only do we worry that sicker patients receive methadone, whereas less sick patients get buprenorphine, but that methadone was really considered the standard of care for a lot of that time. And so you also might think that patients who received buprenorphine were maybe not receiving standard of care, maybe not being treated in the most kind of up-to-date clinics. So I, I'm not totally sure that methadone was given exclusively to sicker patients. But yeah, I think it was a good clinical question, clearly laid out, easy to understand. So I'm interested to hear the results. So let me tell you about the study. So this is a cohort study based on Medicaid data And it featured a total database of 2,548,372 pregnancies that ended in live birth from 2000 to 2018. And they did subgroup analysis of neonatal and maternal outcomes after exposure to buprenorphine compared to methadone. 
For inclusion in the analysis, it was any pregnancy resulting in a live birth to persons aged 12 to 55 years of age who had Medicaid coverage from three months before the date of last menstrual period to one month after delivery. Exclusion criteria was pregnancies in which the person was receiving one of the medications and received a dispensing of or code for the comparator medication from 90 days before the last menstrual period to the end of the exposure window. And that's a really complicated way of saying you were excluded if you crossed over arms. So if you were on methadone and at some point you were receiving buprenorphine or vice versa, you were receiving buprenorphine at one point, you were receiving methadone, you were kind of excluded from this primary analysis. And that was a total of 1,415 cases kind of met that exclusion from crossover. The population of the 2,548,372 live birth deliveries that were linked to infants, 2,537,978 were included in analysis, 10,394 were excluded due to chromosomal abnormalities or exposure to known teratogens during pregnancy. And out of that 13,255, which was 0.52% of linked deliveries were exposed to buprenorphine and 6,019, which was 0.23% were linked exposures to methadone. So kind of out of all those numbers, you're really left with kind of about this 20,000 treatment receiving group that they were analyzing. They divided exposure into two groups, early pregnancy and late pregnancy. And they defined early pregnancy as your last menstrual period through 19 weeks gestational age. And that included 10,704 patients receiving buprenorphine during that period of time and 4,387 receiving methadone during that period of time. The second group late pregnancy was 20 weeks gestational age through delivery. And buprenorphine receiving patients, it was 11,272 and methadone 5,056. So in both groups, there was an increased exposure during the later trimesters of pregnancy, most likely reflecting kind of linkage into care after pregnancy. Primary outcomes. The first one was neonatal outcomes, and they looked at neonatal absence syndrome, preterm birth, small for gestational age, and low birth weight. Secondary was maternal outcomes, and that was cesarean sections. And then they had this group called severe maternal complications, in quotes. And basically, this was a pooled group for analysis of multiple maternal complications like gestational hypertension, preeclampsia. They had a whole list of, of different things, and they kind of pooled all of these possible issues related to pregnancy into one group. They had a lot of covariate analysis where they were trying to kind of exclude uh, baseline differences in terms of the demographics of who was receiving what treatment arms. So they looked at things like history of opioid use disorder, severity of opioid use disorder, non-opioid substance use slash dependence, medical conditions associated with opioid use like hepatitis C, hepatitis B, STIs, HIV, mental health conditions, chronic coexisting conditions, other medication use healthcare utilization, which was indirectly measured through number of visits, number of medications the patients received, and scores on the adequacy of prenatal care utilization index, proxies for social barriers to health. So looked at things like homelessness, domestic violence, care recipients, and demographics. Statistical analysis was done where they did risk ratios for neonatal and maternal outcomes were adjusted for co-founders with the use of propensity score overlap weights. What do you think of the trial design, Sonia? I thought it was good. I mean, it, you know, they had a huge cohort of people and of course a small percentage of them were on buprenorphine or methadone, but still it 
really was a pretty big cohort. So that was nice to see. I think the question was pretty easy to understand. And I just think it was a good clinical question. I think the outcomes were relevant. That's the things that moms care most about, actually. Pregnancy outcomes and is the baby going to suffer from neonatal abstinence? So yeah, I think it's a good clinical question. So, you know, whether this trial is valid or not. So a couple of points. The study was funded by a research grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, so no industry bias there. Uh, It was a Medicaid database-derived cohort study. So like we've talked about with these other large database studies, if it wasn't coded or billed, it didn't happen. It was a really large database, 2,548,372 pregnancies with a large volume of data for patients treated with the Agnes and partial Agnes therapy. So 13,255 for buprenorphine, 6,019 for methadone. Buprenorphine and methadone treatment were not covered by Medicaid in all states between this time period of 2000 and 2018. So there is missing data from some states that weren't covering this as part of their Medicaid care plan. Methadone utilization was assessed based upon drug administration codes. So as many of you guys know, uh, methadone programs are very rigid. You get to, you go every day for your dose to the methadone clinic. You receive your dose. They watch you take it and you leave. As you go along further in the program, you may get a take-home dose or two, but it's kind of very heavily monitored. So when you're basically capturing these patients based upon a drug administration code, that the likelihood that the data is inaccurate is very low, right? Because these are observed receipts of this medication. This contrasts buprenorphine. In the study, buprenorphine utilization was inferred based upon records of medication dispensing. So that would basically assume that if a medication was dispensed to a person, that the person was taking the medication. And we know that's not always the case. There is a fair amount of diversion of buprenorphine. So you basically have a very good standard for methadone receipt and a little bit less. It's still good, but it's not perfect or close to 100% like the methadone capture is. No data was available for comparison in terms of dosage and dose adjustments between groups. So, you know, that was due to the missing methadone data as part of the methadone maintenance program. So we don't know how dosing compared between the two groups and how it changed throughout pregnancy. I really like that the statistical analysis with the propensity score overlap weighing, it attempts to adjust intervention selection for baseline covariance. Like we talked about before, does the methadone use in pregnancy suggest a higher severity of disease or does the buprenorphine patients receive more comprehensive health care? Are they better engaged in their health care, less severe disease? It, it really tries to match that up to kind of at least tease those two groups apart, who's in who. Data was missing for why uh, the 1,415 cases were excluded from the cross-exposure. So like, what was this group that really switched to treatment groups and what does that reflect? It's, it's not a small percentage, that number. And it was not a randomized control trial. So only an association can really be uh, determined off of this. Tell me again how many people crossed over. Is 1,415. Right. I would worry that crossover people were somehow sicker, you know, less successful in one treatment or the other. So ended up having to switch clinics or switch treatments in the middle of pregnancy, which is pretty uncommon. So what are the results? So in terms of exposure, in early pregnancy, uh, 10,704 patients were exposed to buprenorphine, 4,387 were exposed to methadone. In late pregnancy, 11,272 patients were exposed to buprenorphine, while 5,056 were exposed to methadone. In terms of continuity of exposure, 
85% of patients receiving methadone in early pregnancy also received it in late pregnancy. And in terms of methadone, 89% of patients receiving methadone in the second group of late pregnancy also received it in the first group of early pregnancy. So this is uh, kind of substantially different than kind of those numbers from the mother trial, where it was like a 33% versus 19% change there. Characteristics um, compared to patients receiving methadone, patients receiving buprenorphine were more likely to be white, live in the Northeast or Midwest, have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety, have a documented non-opioid substance use disorder, and use antidepressants or psychotropic medications, so antidepressants, antipsychotic, benzodiazepines, or hypnotics. I did think one thing I thought that was interesting that I didn't write in this slide here is that in this study, almost 20% of uh, pregnant women were exposed to uh, or prescribed benzodiazepines as well during pregnancy, which is I think is a relatively high rate for a group of medications that do have teratogenic effects. And interestingly, yeah, it's also a, a high number uh, for people who are on opioids. Like, yeah, yeah that's, that's 20% of patients on opioids opiates, you know, and methadone or buprenorphine for opiate use disorder also being on benzodiazepines is definitely high. I wonder if that's just some of the older data, you know, now that's got a big black box warning on it. So I think we definitely use that combination less. Yeah. And it's interesting, just based upon those characteristics, though, it basically favors that buprenorphine would, would at least be on paper from these coding a, a sicker population. So more mental health, more comorbid substance use disorder, more medications and psychotropics. I don't think that kind of typically reflects a lot of our clinical practice, but at least that's kind of what the demographic data looks like from this, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Compared to patients receiving buprenorphine, patients receiving methadone were more likely to use opioid agents as well. So they were prescribed opioids or using opioids during pregnancy as well. In terms of the results itself, so kind of if I just say like a spoiler alert, big difference in neonatal outcomes, no difference in maternal outcomes. So looking at it from the start, in terms of your neonatal outcomes, neonatal absence syndrome occurred in 52% in the buprenorphine group and 69.2% in the methadone group with an adjusted relative risk of 0.73, with a confidence interval of 0.71 to 0.75. And this was consistent between early and late pregnancy. Preterm birth occurred in 14% in the buprenorphine group and 24.9% in the methadone group, with an adjusted relative risk of 0.58, confidence interval of 0.53 to 0.62. This was an early pregnancy, also consistent in late pregnancy. Small for gestational age occurred less frequently in the buprenorphine group at 12.1% and 15.3% in the methadone group with a relative risk of 0.72 with a confidence interval of 0.66 to 0.8 in early pregnancy, also consistent in late pregnancy. Low birth weight occurred less frequently in the buprenorphine group of 8.3%, 14.9% in the methadone group with a relative risk of 0.56 with a confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.63 and that was early pregnancy, also consistent in late pregnancy. So to summarize, neonatal absence syndrome, preterm birth, small for gestational age, low birth weight, all less frequently with buprenorphine exposure than methadone, and that did not cross one in terms of the confidence interval. So that was significant. Maternal outcomes, on the other, were relatively similar between the two groups. Caesarean section rates was 33.6% in the buprenorphine group compared to 33.1% in the methadone group. That was a relative risk of 1.02 with a confidence interval of 0.97 to 1.08. That was early pregnancy, also consistent in late pregnancy. And this group of 
quote, severe maternal complications was 3.3% in the buprenorphine group compared to 3.5% in the methadone group with a relative risk of 0.91 with a confidence interval of 0.74 to 1.13. And that was consistent between early and late pregnancy. So both cerezarian section and severe maternal complications had a confidence interval across one, and there was no difference between the two. You know, I'm not surprised because I think our patients sometimes have difficulty with methadone, partly because of the schedule. And methadone is so burdensome that often it's only the sickest patients who end up going to methadone clinics, people who kind of don't have any other easier option. But the methadone itself isn't bad for people. You know, I see my patients who are stable on methadone doing just fine. So I would be surprised if women on methadone somehow had different, worse health than women on buprenorphine, especially if they're pregnant and they're stable and they're receiving other services and taking care of themselves in other ways. So I'm not super surprised by this. In terms of the adequacy of prenatal care utilization index, so this is like an index kind of looking at prenatal visit number, but also at what age, uh, gestational age, does someone enter the prenatal care pathway? And it's kind of divided into inadequate, intermediate, adequate, and adequate plus. To go through the groups, it's kind of sad, actually. The people receiving buprenorphine, 42.4% receive inadequate prenatal care. In the methadone group, 44.9% receive inadequate prenatal care. In terms of intermediate, which is not even adequate, buprenorphine, it was 16.9% only received intermediate care. In the methadone group, 17.6% uh, received intermediate care. In terms of adequate care, in buprenorphine, it was 16.2%, methadone, 14.1%, and adequate plus, which is like, you know, you're like the best doing everything. For buprenorphine, it was 24.5%, and methadone was 23.4%. So just to give you an idea, in terms of people not at least reaching adequate uh, prenatal care, in both groups, it was over 60%. Compared to kind of the U.S. average, and the U.S. average, 76.4% of women in the United States receive adequate or beyond prenatal care, while in this study, it was less than 40%. So a big difference in terms of our patients with opioid use disorder and, and the care that they receive. That is really sad. I, I think it's probably a combination of stigma and, you know, difficulty organizing yourself and not being connected with the healthcare system, maybe figuring out you're pregnant late if you're not really, I don't know, taking care of yourself, don't have money to buy a pregnancy test, that kind of thing. Yeah. I guess my final takeaway is like, will this results help me in patient care? Just kind of a little bit about myself. You know, I, I do do addiction medicine and I do take care of uh, uh, patients that are pregnant, although I don't provide obstetric care or prenatal care anymore. And I do not work for a methadone maintenance program. So oftentimes, many of my patients, either with addiction issues or that I'm treating for addiction, they are either pregnant or they are at risk of becoming pregnant at some point. And often they're going to, they ask you my opinion about what they should do kind of moving forward if they do become pregnant. It's not uncommon conversation in the office for a patient that becomes pregnant to ask me if they should consider switching over to a methadone maintenance program from buprenorphine. Previously, my recommendations have really kind of been based mostly on that mother trials data suggesting kind of decreased neonatal abstinence syndrome in infants born to mothers receiving buprenorphine. But I, I think that's really kind of a, that's not a 
patient-centered outcome that probably a lot of my patients really kind of care the most about. I mean, neonatal abstinence syndrome is unfortunate. It's not uh, life-threatening in most cases. It's easily managed if you're plugged into prenatal care. It often doesn't have kind of the more severe outcomes like overdose that I think most of my patients really kind of are the most concerned about. So I think that while this is like interesting information to confirm that probably the baby is less likely to have those types of outcomes, I don't think it's I would change kind of treatment course to do so. I think I would still kind of target those symptoms of opioid use disorder and whatever treatment was available that would allow them to kind of mitigate that and make their prenatal care appointments. I think that's the treatment I would still recommend. I don't know, Sonia, how do you feel about it? Well, I agree that keeping mom from relapsing is priority number one. And switching treatment to avoid neonatal abstinence syndrome, if that jeopardizes someone's sobriety, it's definitely not worth it. My patients do ask about that a lot, though. It is a big concern for them. I actually had a discussion today with someone about that. And this was someone whose partner, you know, its partner was concerned about what was going to happen to the baby. And I said sort of like you, you know, not to minimize what it's like to have a sick newborn, which is really terrible experience. And it does color your first few days with your baby, but babies pretty much come through it with flying colors. And, you know, we do rooming in at St. Max's Hospital. You keep the baby with you. A lot of times they're fine with just some extra comforting. They don't need medication. Most of my patients whose babies have had neonatal abstinence haven't required opiate medication They've just needed a little extra attention and they've been okay in a few days. So I don't want to say it's not a big deal or not serious, but it's like you, I feel it pales in comparison to the risk of relapse. And I, th- and I think one thing is, you know, neonatal syndrome, we often think about it with benzodiazepines and opioids. There is association with SSRIs and SNRIs. And I feel like we never really kind of take the risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome into account when patients are stable from a mental health standpoint on those medications. So I think it's, again, kind of somewhat stigmatizing to the treatment of this condition more so than anything else. Yeah, the most severe case of neonatal abstinence syndrome in my panel was with a mom who was on both SSRIs and buprenorphine. The combination of the two was really difficult for the baby, and the baby did have to stay in the hospital way beyond the mom's discharge. And it was pretty hard for the family But again, mom stayed drug-free during pregnancy, was able to stay stable, kept her job. You know, her life was very stable and was able to bring the baby back to a stable home. So I don't know what would have happened had she not been on that medication. Yeah, I think that article is great. One thing I would really love from a future article, I know that there's kind of a jump in about kind of many patients are stable on, on antagonist therapy, not agonist therapy. And there are kind of newer recommendations about if, if they're stable, do you leave them there or not? I think that's that would be really interesting to see some, some pregnancy-related data on that topic. All right, New England Journal, get on that. Well, thank you, John. That was a really great article. Before we wrap up, I want to do a little bit of talk back from our listeners. We got an email from one of our listeners, Stephen, who is committed to listening to all of the old episodes in order. He says, quote, I'm way behind, as you can see, but just listen to the presentation on smoking cessation after a diagnosis of lung cancer. You point out all the potential pitfalls, but I agree with you that the results are impressive. I very much appreciated your discussion of how to approach this with patients. I also think the first discussion about getting addiction medicines was interesting and potentially useful if it helps doctors to push for easier access. Thank you, Stephen, for being a listener. And you've got 11 more 
episodes to get caught up and we would welcome any other input you have. We also got a comment regarding episode 12 from a Dr. Sarah Spencer, and this came on Facebook. She said, quote, great episode. Somehow I missed this article. And this was the article on methadone and opiate use disorder and overdoses in rural communities. I'm presenting on a topic related to this at ASAM in April on low threshold extended release buprenorphine for reducing overdose risk in patients who use methamphetamines with opioids in rural Alaska. Our co-use rates are approaching 90% and Alaskan natives have some of the highest overdose rates in the nation. We offer a lot of off-label treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, but the biggest gap is the availability of contingency management for stimulant use disorder and the upcoming opioid settlement funds for states and tribes offers an opportunity to utilize money for contingency management and harm reduction to address these problems head on. So Dr. Spencer, that sounds like an awesome talk and I'm looking forward to it. I think as we said in a previous episode, we'll both be at ASAM, which is in Washington, D.C. in April of 2023. So thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can send us email, message us on Twitter or Facebook, join our Facebook group, or comment on our YouTube channel. The links will be in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Angela Olfest, video production by Paul Kennedy. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.